It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, and welcome to the Sailing and Cruising the East Coast of the United States podcast. I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. This is our episode about sailing the East Coast of the United States. In some episodes, we will focus on passages and destinations. In other episodes, we'll talk about boats, equipment, and techniques. And when we come across an interesting person, we'll try to get them as a guest on the show. But before we dive into this episode, we need to say a special thank you to our supporters. Several listeners are supporting the podcast by using Patreon. If you would like to join them, you can go to patreon.com forward slash sailing the east. Yeah, that's great, Bela. Always happy to have more listeners and more supporters. But let's think about today. And I'm really excited to hear about who we're going to talk with on this episode. Yeah, so repeat guest. So uh, you, you listeners might remember back in episode 84 and 85. We talked to Simon and Sawyer about their preparations for making their first Atlantic crossing on their Passport 40 sailboat. Well, they departed Newport, Rhode Island, and have made it to Horta, which is in the Azores. That's approximately two-thirds of the way across the Atlantic, and it's a very popular place for people to stop, regardless of whether they're heading east or heading west. It's sort of uh, 800 miles off the coast of Spain, and everybody stops there, uh, regardless of the direction they're going. So in this episode, uh, we check in with them while they're in Horta. And uh, we talked about their uh, journey so far and how it went. There was a lot of great lessons in this one. Boy, it was it was very eye-opening to me, uh, some of the things that they experienced. And uh, then we also talk a little bit about their uh, preparations for their final leg uh, to the United Kingdom. Yeah, I'm excited to hear how the first part of this trip went, Bela. And just um, you mentioned it, but I think it's worth mentioning again, if there's new listeners or listeners that don't listen regularly, um, check out first 84 and 85, those two episodes with Simon and Sawyer first. Then they talk all about the preparations that they made and the planning that went to it. And it'll really make listening to this episode, I think, a lot more worthwhile. But on that note, let's get right to part one and see how Simon and Sawyer fared on the trip from Newport to the Azor Islands. Awesome. Hey, Sawyer, Simon, good to see you guys again. We're back. Hey, Vela, <laughs> we made it. <laughs> yeah, so last time we spoke, just to bring our listeners up to speed, you guys were in Rhode Island, and you guys were planning uh, your trip across the Atlantic, your first sail across the Atlantic. 
And uh, so that was the last time our listeners heard from you guys. So where are you now? Uh, we're not in Rhode Island anymore. Uh, we're currently calling from Pete's Cafe Sport in, in Horta, uh, the Azores. Um, it's a little more tropical than Rhode Island. Uh, took us a little while to get here, but yeah, we made it. We so, made it. Yeah, we, we made it. Uh, everyone's accounted for. And uh, oh, Bailey, if you remember, we were going to do like a way in and a way out. Um, at least for me, I definitely, I mean, it doesn't show it anymore, but I definitely lost weight on this trip. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we have a lot of food left over. So uh, that was our experience. And actually talking to a lot of other people here, uh, it was the same. They all had great plans and complicated meals, and they were like nursing crackers uh, <laughs> for, for, for three weeks. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, any other listeners planning a big trip? Maybe you're different, but I would say uh, you may be surprised at how little you can and really want to eat on the trip. Yeah. Yeah. And is that because uh, you felt a little seasick most of the time or just anxiety or... Yeah, I mean, probably all those things. I, def- I was I was quite seasick, actually. Uh, and I've had, you know, I get mildly seasick. Usually it, it resolves itself after three or four days when, you know, we, we travel together. Uh, but I was pretty seasick the whole way, in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, you know, these, these, and we learned this in, you know, the wilderness first responder, right? Your, your systems are all connected. So if you don't sleep well and you're anxious, and you're sick and then you don't eat well and you're anxious and it, it goes around and around. So, uh, we were able to work through it. I was able to work through it, but it, yeah, I was not thinking about food much of the time. Sure. Yeah. So did you, did you take any medications? Uh, I didn't have like patches. I, I took some of that over the counter. Um, you know, Oh, you guys just and uh, so so you guys uh, got choppy there. So I think the last coherent thing was, uh, did you take any medications and re reply to that question? Okay. Um, yeah, no, no prescription medication. I took some of the you know, over the counter. And uh, but, you know, after a few days, actually, even the idea of, of taking a pill kind of made me sick. So I, <laughs> Yeah, when you can't keep stuff down, it doesn't work super well, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was okay. I don't want to. I don't exaggerate. But point being, I don't. Wasn't thinking about food. (laughs) All right, all right. So let's just recap here a little bit. The plan is to sail all the way across the Atlantic. You're not all the way across yet, if I remember my geography. Uh, Horta and the Azores are about what two thirds of the way across. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Yeah, and uh, so uh, you guys departed on uh, Newport what, what date was that do you remember it was in early June yeah we uh, we had a plan for uh, I think Monday the 5th and then based on our weather routing recommendations we held off a couple days yeah uh, and uh, so in all in all altogether it took just under 17 days to cross so, okay and that. and was that sort of what you expected was that longer than expected I, I'm not ca- calibrating me here yeah, we actually, so, you know, they typically say the range for the, the Newport to Azores is, is a pretty common route. And a standard, you know, time range for that, they say, is between, what, 16 and 22 days in that range? Yeah. And so, you know, 17 is actually on the on the earlier side of that range, which, you know, we were pretty happy with because we're not racers and we weren't pushing very hard. 
Um, you know, the I think we, you know, we spent the first three days motoring, and I think we were uh, we were we didn't really hesitate to motor. Um, you know, when it was calm, and so I think you know for the folks that are who aren't doing that, like some of the people that we've seen on the dock, you know, they 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 hit a calm patch and they just sit in it for three days. Um, and in our case, you know, we were going five knots. Um, and then that, that that allowed us to get really a great weather pattern after that. And we were had 20 to 30 knots behind us for the rest of the way. So yeah, we met a guy on the dock who came in 34 days after leaving. He left the same day we did. Um, but he sat off of Nantucket for three days, uh, but then also couldn't catch the weather that we caught. And it kind of went from oh, there. Wow. So no, we were, we, we were pleased with our trip and at talking to people here. That was that was fast. Yeah, it was. And we were, you know, we really only had one uh, kind of period of time where we weren't making any progress. That was about halfway through the trip. We had to heave two for about 12 hours, yeah. wait for a front to pass through. But otherwise, we were right on course, headed due east, doing like four to six knots for, for most of the way. Yeah. Ah, very nice. So what are... What are the things that went as expected? <laughs> we arrived. We arrived. <laughs> I mean, I will say that you're you're sort of, for me, and I tend to be kind of goal oriented. Your goals do shift, right? So, uh, it was just to get here in one piece, right? All all hands accounted for. Uh, we take good care of our boat, but actually, at some point, I really wasn't that worried about. <laughs> the boat as long as it as long as we arrived so yeah i think that was that was okay um what else when is expected I mean, we didn't have any disasters no we didn't have any disasters i mean i think for me i think the sailing was kind of as i expected if not even maybe a little easier yeah like the you know the physical like plan and the navigation side of it um there really wasn't much navigating i mean you know we we had were the routers that were helping us, but the, the route that they were giving us was pretty much just the great circle route to the Azores, right? Um, and and that, that was pretty much what we did. I mean, we, we tried to sail east, and, you know, sometimes there were small deviations there, but it wasn't, uh, it was really easy. It wasn't very complicated. I think. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that, that, that we were happy it worked so well was our communication uh systems so we had we talked about last time we, we had iridium go for satellite communication we had a, a second one for backup and we had a ssb for backup to that and then we communicated with you bail actually as our onshore kind of support person and yeah i think that went pretty well we, we were tended you know we didn't really lose connectivity and we were able to communicate with the outside world we got weather updates uh, I think one day we were feeling so lousy we kind of forgot to text you, and then you <laughs> you texted us like, "Hey guys, everything all right?" And we're like, "Oh yeah, sorry, we're just kind of feeling lousy." You do you do lose a sense of time, obviously, right? Because uh, it's just like 16, 17 days, and you're not really sleeping much, and and you're not eating the way you normally eat, so just one hour falls into another hour. Um, but yeah, we were able. I mean, it's kind of amazing, right, that you can sail across the ocean and still be in touch with people. It's, it's right. really, it, it really changed the way you can say it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what were, uh, I, I want to leave the equipment stuff and, and the challenges you had there till the end. So from the point of view of the experience, what were the things that happened that were sort of unexpected or, you know, either better than you expected them to be 
or there was more of a challenge than you inspected them to be? Sure. I got some. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I think like starting broad and, and dialing in, uh, one of the things that surprised me was um, how kind of hands off we were sailing wise. Right. So, you know, when we're coastal sailing or, um, you know, motoring through the ICW or sailing around Maine, whatever, right, you're you're in the cockpit, you're very dialed in of where the boat is, where are you sailing, what's your VMG, right? We need to tack to get around this island. Like, when are we going to do that? Right. Right. Um, right. And when you're, out, when you're out in the middle of the ocean, there's nothing to hit. So, right. you know, we we point our, the bow towards the east, we get a sail plan, and then we wouldn't really change things. Um, you know, for several hours at a time. And so, you know, we, we spent much more of our time down below. And obviously, you know, we'd, we'd poke our heads out to look for things. You know, we had AIS and radar. Um, but we were not, you know, in the cockpit hand steering, trying to, you know, hold a course. You know, we would set the wind vane, we'd set the sails, and then we, we wouldn't make an adjustment for six hours or 12 hours. Um, you know, overnight, like we'd set, you know, we set a sail plan at, sunset and you know we wouldn't really think about it until sunrise yeah um and that that was just very new um and honestly it was, it was nice uh, yeah. but, but unexpected. And, and part of that's you know again we were cruising and we again intentionally were our goal was to get here right and get here safely right so right. if it's 16 days or 22 days that was okay and so we weren't trying to steer down every wave you know or adjust everything um, i think we had like a three-day maybe three days sorry where we didn't even touch the sails. We had the whisker pull out. Yeah, no. it was like three or four days, I think. Uh, well, it's just it was different. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was cool. And the, you know, the wind vane was a was a champ. I don't think. I mean, I you know we'd pretty gotten pretty comfortable with our wind vane before, but um, you know, we I mean we used the wind vane the entire trip, and it's kind of funny. You get this this kind of sixth sense when you're down below. Right. And you can feel the boat. You can feel how it's doing. And when it gets a little out of trim or or something's off, you can feel it. Sure. And and so the development of that feeling was pretty new. Right. We've like I think from our coastal sailing background, we're used to being in the cockpit and you see it visually when something's off. Right. You know, we're off course or the wind speed increases or whatever. But when you're down below, you're you know, you're sleeping and then you feel the boat power up a little too much or you know one wave hits a little differently and you know yeah. so we're not looking at each other and we both knew <laughs> it's time to go out <laughs> it's time to do get on deck and do something we don't want to but we better do it we both knew at the same time yeah so that was cool yeah. and um uh, yeah i mean I, i'll say some things sure i mean it was really hard <laughs> for me i'll say that it was very it was the hardest thing i've ever done uh physically and you know and mentally um, I was probably not prepared for it to be so physically hard. I don't mean like trying to raise the main or whatever. It, it's physically hard because you do, in my case, I, it, it was very difficult to sleep. And if you did sleep, you, I was sleeping for 10 minutes or 20 minutes at a time. And that's okay for a day or two. Uh, you get into a week or so. Right. It's another level of exhaustion that I had, I didn't really understand. So, um, and then as I mentioned before, you know, these systems are all interrelated, right? So if you don't sleep very well, your digestive system kind of shuts down. And um, I was getting very, very dehydrated. And so I remember one day my goal was, I just got to drink this one bottle of water. I'm just gonna, you know, sip by sip, I'm gonna drink it, hold it. 
and try to get myself out of this this cycle. So um, yeah, that was I don't want to be over dramatic, but it was yeah, yeah. it was physically. Um, and then you know part of it also too is anxiety level because I you know uh, in my case I felt very responsible having my both my son and my father on board, and so uh, you're always sleeping with one eye open. You know every little creak, <laughs> I look up is that is everything okay? Is my dad just like falling overboard? You know right so, right. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's really tough. That being said, and I also don't mean to exaggerate. I'm not. It was probably the best experience after my kids being born that I've ever had in my life. So uh, that final morning, and I think it was two nights in a row without sleeping. I'm really not sleeping. The final morning, we we the sun came up and we looked out and you could see the volcano of the Azores popping through the clouds, and immediately you had all your energy back and it was. I'll never, I'll never forget that moment. That was, like I said, apart from my kids being born, that's like, yeah. that's number three. Really cool. Nice. Nice. Uh, so I, I did want to ask a couple of other questions. One is, how did your power plan work out, right? You have some solar cells. Uh, you guys made the hard dodger. So let's talk about the hard dodger addition a little bit, the solar cells and your sort of power management. Yeah, sure. Well, you can start with the hard dodger and I'll go into the power. That's kind of how we split up the... Yeah, yeah. Oh, so the hard dodger, it went on great. We talked last time about I wasn't sure. Well, I couldn't get out the building, but once I got out the building, <laughs> it uh, it went on very well. And um, we got everything mounted with the solar panels and we got mounted some other gear up there. And uh, it didn't blow away. It was really sturdy. Uh, so we do have some tie down points that we thought we could use if it, you know, the winds got higher. But uh, no, it was, a, it was a great addition, and it definitely changed the you know the feel of the cockpit and allowed us to have all the solar. So yeah, I'll leave it at that. And then, I mean, the, the, the solar addition was, I think, a, a real game changer. We have had a, a surplus of power every day. And during the, the, the trip, this was another unexpected thing, I suppose, was it was cloudy almost every day. Yeah, well, yeah. We, we had, had, we had mm. the, the wildfire. Right? Yeah, so we, we had the, the wildfire the Canadian wildfires had, were producing all this haze when we were leaving Newport. Um, and then once we got out of range of the wildfires, it was just cloudy. So we, we only had two days out of that 17 with blue skies. Mm -hmm. It was completely overcast, you know, pretty much the, the rest of the time. Um, but even with that, you know, we were operating at a power surplus and um, we essentially just didn't have to think about it. And then once we got to Horta, right, like we've been having hot showers with our hot water heater. And we still end the day with 100% power all the time. We have our fridge and our freezer running constantly. Um, we just don't think about it. Yeah. yeah. So just to remind folks, what we did, it was we've got a total of uh, 600 watts, mm -hmm. right? So three 200 watt solar panels, crystalline solar panels, and we have a charge controller for each one. Yeah. Kind of for some redundancy, and um, we have a 1500 watt inverter. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, in in you know noon with some good sun, we're producing about 32 amps. Yeah, Which is, you know, shore power. Basically. Yeah, that's the equivalent of plugging in at the dock, and that's what we get at noon on a sunny day. And you know, the, actually, just kind of an important technical point: having individual charge controllers for every panel is actually extremely yeah, important. Because yeah. what we found, you know, diagnosing the system and, and whatnot, is we have we have three panels, and they're on the dodger, and it forms kind of this inverted U, right? So the, the one in the center is perfectly horizontal, and then you know, one and one that are kind of tilted. And so when we're sailing, um, it's extremely common for at least one of those panels to be blocked, either because 
the boat's heeled over and one of them's facing away from the sun, or we have the boom that's covering one of them, yeah. or whatever. And uh, if we had all of them on one charge controller, then that one panel would sync the entire array, yeah. right? But because we have each panel controlled individually, you know, each panel is producing about 12 amps. And so we can get the full 12 amps, you know, from the two that are powered up, then the third one is producing any power. Um, yeah, that's really important. I hadn't really thought about that when we were yeah. designing the system in a, a real advantage. That was, so putting a, a charge controller on each one, was that something you read about? Was that some advice somebody gave you or where did that sort of notion come from? So honestly, it came because the, the charge controllers have a maximum capacity. And so the boat, as we had received it from the previous owner, um, had two charge controllers for a four panel array. Um, and honestly, it was just because I'm a little neurotic and I'm thinking, okay, if you have four panels divide by two, you get two, that works out. If you have three panels, how do you, how do you get three panels? on the two <laughs> <laughs> It just seemed kind of weird. Right. Um, and, but, but we already had the, the system in place where you have one charge controller. That's the, the master or the, you know, the, the head one. And then the other charge controllers are sort of the slaves. They're just, they, they take the lead from the one charge controller. So you build with the equivalent of one charge controller out of all these little ones. Um, and so because we already had that system in place, and I could see it and I could see the wiring. I could see how they had done it before. Then the process of just adding a third one and duplicating all that effort wasn't hard. I didn't really read or hear about it online. Um, I haven't you're, you're right about that, that concept of, I think a lot of these panels, they will basically, it's not like it's linear. They'll, they'll stop working if they're less than 50%. Yeah. Right. Well, it's not even, I mean, the, as my, I, I'm not an electrical engineer, but but my understanding of it is, is if you have even just one cell of a 30 cell panel covered, it can, you know, reduce it by 80%. Yeah, I, it can like again, really, really. There's a formula there. So you're right. If, if the boat's healed over or the, the, the sail's blocking like one panel. Yeah, or your backstay or a flag and anything, right? A seagull. Right. Like, yeah. right. <laughs> we had more power than we thought, so it was good. Yeah. And it was very cost effective. So again, if folks are thinking about it or thinking about upgrading, uh, I mean, in our case, the whole thing was. I don't know, 800 bucks, 600 bucks. Yeah, we just got some like Reynoldsy panels off of Amazon, right? These are not like hard things to find. Yeah. So yeah. Good. Yeah. And it also sounds like uh, having more capacity than you think you're going to need is good because, like you said, typically one of the panels wasn't producing anything. So mm -hmm. if you would have only had two, <laughs> right, and one of those wasn't producing any, then you might end up with a deficit for the day. Yeah. And again, you know, it's common sense, but you can't assume it's going to be sun. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that actually had a, you know, a surprising effect, right? So we, you know, when it's a nice, clear blue sky day, we'll get 32 amps from the panels. You know, the day we left Newport uh, was also a nice sunny day, but full of haze from the wildfires. And we were only getting maybe 10 amps. Yeah. Right. So it was reducing our our capacity by over 65%. Um, yeah. Okay. So next subject, uh, water maker. So, you know, uh, mm. power and water, those are, those are two important <laughs> mm -hmm. things and lots of, and lots of crackers. So yeah. to talk to me about the water maker. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. 
Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The water maker, I thought, was, was really good. Really effective. Um, it didn't use much power at all. And it produced an incredible... So, you know, we have one of the smaller water makers that you can get on the market. You know, it produces about a gallon and a half an hour. Um, and, but for us, you know, you, you let it run all day long and that's like half a tank of water. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, yeah, so we've got uh, we've got two tanks for water, uh, each one 60 gallons, and we have the water maker feeding one of those tanks. Um, so we kept one tank full and then the other tank, you know, we get down to about half and then we'd start the water maker. And like Sorry said, it's only a small amount of water per hour, but of course you're on a 24-hour right. day after day after day, so it, it, it cranks out the water. Um, we definitely had enough you know, for drinking and eating, but what was we thought really important, maybe you said last time, is it allows us to take showers, <laughs> which is a real comfort thing, right? We could, we could take a hot shower, uh, even if it's only a minute, it really helps you reset, sure. kind of you know, back in the game. And we thought that was actually a safety issue, not just a comfort issue, which they're related. Yeah. So yeah. it was great. Yeah, we had no problems with it. It took us, uh, you got to kind of run it when you first, we put it in new. So we had to run it for a bit to get the initial chemicals out of the filter, right? And then we ran it a little bit more to just to be sure we, we weren't pumping salt water into our tank. <laughs> and once it was good, then we were, we just let it go. Yeah. yeah. Well, I taste it. And, um, you know, really the, the limiting factor, so I think on, on a, like typically on a boat, you'd be limited by electrical power. Yeah. But in our case, we they have to worry about that. It pulls about four amps when it's running. Um, but most of the time, that was fine. Uh, it's honestly, it's a little noisy. And, you know, part of it is because of where we installed it. Um, you know, we installed it where our air conditioner used to be. So there's like a big air vent there. It's not insulated. Yeah, true. Um, it's right under one of the berths. So I, I'm sure we could have been a little more thoughtful if we really wanted to. But um, I didn't find that noisy, but I don't hear that well. I, well, you wouldn't want to sleep on it i no, think it's it's, the thing, oh, that was right? under your bed too, so, so we're you know we're, we're we can't just run 24 hours a day because we're we're trying to sleep and we're not just sleeping at night right we're taking these naps all throughout right. the day yeah. um, and so yeah that ended up being more of the constraint was we don't want to like be keeping people trying to make water yep. yeah I, yeah we you know we read that typically you need about three gallons per person per day for eating drinking and, okay. and cooking yeah so if you're trying to do your your formula your math there so in our case we need about nine gallons Per day, per day so that was you know five or six hours of running if but we had of course 120 gallons to start so. yeah. yeah yeah and uh, just share with us the brand and model of the water maker you had since it seemed to work very well yeah yeah um so it's the katadin or katadin you know the, the wherever that mountain is in maine yeah um called the e-survivor like 4000 e or something but i think something it's like e survivor yeah um okay so it's uh, yeah. What's, what one of the reasons we got it? Um, it's got a fairly small footprint. Um, it also though has a manual handle for pumping, so it can be used if we lost power. Say you know. It, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Right, it wasn't working, mm -hmm. or we are, we got hit by lightning. We could still do it. And then 
we have like four screws to have it mounted underneath our settee. So our kind of bailout plan actually uh, was we could take the screws out, we could grab the whole thing, and I guess we could sit in our life raft and <laughs> we could make our own water. Yeah. So that, that's a small advantage, but it is an advantage. And um, but we when we, we installed it, we installed it with uh, service loops for the for the power and for the hoses, so that if you know we if we lost power, we could take the unit out without disconnecting it, right? Sit it on the settee mm -hmm. and then pump it that way. So, Got it. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's a it's a nice and it was the um, kind of defender, right? Yeah, defender, and we installed the two the two of us in about six hours, man hours, person hours. So it's it's not a complicated system. No, it's yeah. super simple. And most of the effort there was like pulling out the old <laughs> air conditioner yeah, true. that was that was sitting in it. If you can do basic plumbing, you know, PEC style plumbing, you can do it in a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very good. Uh, what about weather? So you guys uh, had a weather router and yeah. uh, you got forecast from the weather router. How frequently and, you know, talk about that whole experience. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the first time we'd, we'd used a weather router. Uh, and but it was, I thought it was great. So uh, the one we used and maybe others similar, the the pricing model is kind of a paper drink model. So you uh, you can use it as much or as little as you want. So uh, we um, we initially got a sort of a, a an outlook summary for the area we were selling in, which is like the North Atlantic, and that's that's sent to you two days before your planned departure, and that's big picture. You know, here's Here's a low forming. Here's a front that may be blocking. You know, blah blah blah. Uh, and then some narrative like, you know, based on this, we think you may want to delay a day because you may hit this weather system in four days or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so we got that, and again, in our case, it told us that we should, we might want to consider delaying a couple of days, right? Because, you know, which which we did. Um, and then once you confirm with them what you want to do, in our case, leaving on whatever Wednesday. The day before, uh, they they will send you a either a three or a five day forecast and a route, and so we did the five day at a time. Uh, with every fourth day, we asked for a new five day because mm -hmm. that fifth day is much less accurate than day sure. one, right? Um, and it's again per drink, and it's 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 very cost effective. Uh, we had a little back and forth usually with each uh, forecast which is nice someone's actually there and, and kind of responding to our questions. A couple of times they had an option for us. You know, you could continue to go east. You can sail, but you're going to be getting a little bit heavier weather. Or you can go south, uh, probably allow this front to pass faster, but you're going to have to heave too and you're going to lose six hours. So, you yeah. know, give, give us some choices. Um, and then in our case, we didn't use it, but in our case, you can actually phone a friend if you want. Uh, there's a small consulting fee for that and you can email them or call them and, you know, They'll, they'll look out for you. Yeah, sure. Yep. So I, I, you know, in the end, we actually, as Sawyer mentioned, we kind of went along the Great Circle route anyway, but it gave us a sense that we had another set of eyes on what we were doing. And uh, probably if, you know, if we're very experienced, we could read, predict wind as well as these guys, you know, but um, they were giving us not just the wind and sea state, also information about the currents, the Gulf Stream currents. Also information about uh, thunderstorms and, you know, is it going to be cloudy or what? And, you know, yeah. it was, uh, yeah, it was nice. Yeah, no, I think having having an extra set of eyes. Yeah, for, for me, it really provided two two big benefits. You know, the, the first is just the reassurance that, you know, our plan makes sense. And, you know, so, you know, we're looking at predict win and we're kind of 
thinking of the great circle route and you know what winds we might hit and then we get the forecast from them and it says you know it's going to be okay so that that's really reassuring and then the you know the, the second big value uh for us has been the departure planning right so when do we actually leave um because i think you know in, in in both cases you know we're, we're changing our departure plans um to, to try and optimize that weather window based off of what what, what they're saying um but you know once we're actually out in the water it the weather routing for us was less <coughs> routing because we're we're mostly doing the great circle route and more just you know what are we expecting yeah um yeah. i think that that departure is really important though too because at least I found myself, right, if you have an idea of when you want to leave, you try to find evidence to support that idea, <laughs> right? So there's like six different models that you can look at or seven or eight now I'm predicting, right? So you look at the first one, GFS, and it's like, ooh, that's going to be nasty in four days. Let me look at the European one. Yeah. No. Oh, that's not so bad. <laughs> Whereas, you know, in this case, uh, yeah, these guys said, hey, you could leave on Monday, but you're probably going to see 40 knots on Thursday. And you told us before that you were a small crew that didn't really want to do that. We suggest you leave Wednesday, and it, it helps to have someone tell you that. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, excellent. So, what was the what? Would you mind sharing the name of the weather routing company that you used? Yeah, in our case, we used it's called Commander. Uh, they're based, I believe, in uh, New Hampshire. They've been doing it for a while, like thirty years. They were recommended yeah. to us by our surveyor. Uh, he uses them for racing. They do a lot of race routing, and I can't say they're super great, super easy to talk to. Um, Again, we have some emails back and forth. Um, I don't know how they do it. They must have hundreds or thousands of people they're talking to, but they it always seemed like they knew exactly who we were and what was going on. And yeah, right. that's cool. The other thing to offer too, um, for no cost, is they, they will track you as well on the Predictwin tracker. And if they see something that you should be aware of, they'll let you know. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really changed, and they'll they'll just say, hey guys, just make sure you're aware of X Y Z. You know. So yeah, yeah so interesting. You know, they advertise themselves as you know 5 a.m to 5 p.m seven days 365 yeah you know and it's a team it's not just one person yeah sure um, it's a big actually yeah so, so what uh, uh what does each drink cost uh sure it's uh if i can remember right so i think that that first summary is like 50 bucks yeah uh and then the three-day forecast and route is uh 60 bucks or 50 bucks and then like the, the the five days 80 bucks mm. And then the phone a friend is like forty dollars, I think. If wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's That's not. It's a, you know, in our case, it was. I think we spent three hundred dollars coming over. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I didn't know. I thought it would be super expensive. I don't. I don't feel like that's that expensive compared to. I spent three hundred dollars on a, a rope piece of rope before I left. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, that sounds that sounds super reasonable to me. I mean, I was expecting a number higher than that. I've never used one. I wasn't really calibrated. So yeah, that's. Yeah, that and you're not like a again, pretty good deal. It's up to you, and you can decide. And I think after we did like three or four of these five days, and then the last one, okay, we were four days away from the Azores. We kind of knew what we were going to expect, so we were like, "Thanks so much. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks when we get ready to leave." And yeah. yeah, it's all yeah. good. Sounds great, Bela. What an unbelievable start to this story, and we're only halfway through it. Um, what struck you as the most interesting elements of this first leg of their journey? Oh, man, this was this was really a good conversation I had with those guys. I really enjoyed it. You know, as we learned uh, from the previous episodes where they talked about planning, I thought they did a super job about uh, prepping for the trip from food to taking first aid courses uh, to changing equipment on the boat, uh, having triple redundant systems on the boat. 
uh, et cetera. Uh, having a weather router, you know, they did all the things that if you're going to read books or listen to other people say that you need to do. Um, and as with all things, uh, all good plans, it's just a plan because <laughs> then different things happen and change. Uh, and and they certainly had a few of those. I think the thing that struck me, the one of the things that struck me the most is <clears throat> it's a long trip. It took them 17 days, which actually is is a is a good pace. So there's plenty of people who, who it takes 24, 25, 27 days, just depending upon weather windows. And you're on a sailboat. If the weather doesn't, you know, if you, the weather's not in your favor, you could bop around in the ocean for a couple of days and not make any progress. Uh, so it's a long trip. So it's probably, uh, you know, four or five years of coastal cruising crammed into 17 days. <laughs> so if you think about, sailing coastal cruising for four or five years and the wear and tear on your boat that's going to happen now all of a sudden all that wear and tear is focused in 17 days um so i, I think you know that's sort of a, a, a big takeaway for me you got to think about it that way uh, and i also you know simon said it was the hardest thing he's ever done but he also said it's one of the best experiences he's ever had so i and i've read this before on highs are super high and the lows are super low and it's this real roller coaster uh and the roller coaster can change you know frequently <laughs> the highs and the highs and lows it can change in 30 seconds you can go from a high to a low or vice versa uh, so i think i think that's another thing that you just sort of have to be prepared for you have to you have to know that this is how it's going to be and in a very small microcosm sort of way, I've experienced those on on day trips, right? You go out for sailing for a day and it starts out beautiful. And then, you know, within the span of a half hour, you're in the middle of a thunderstorm. <laughs> and it's like, what happened? Um, so I think the other thing is interesting is this notion of you're on a sailboat. So when there's no wind, what do you do? Do you turn on your motor and use up fuel? Because you don't, you clearly don't have enough fuel to, to to motor all the way across the Atlantic, and they took extra fuel with them in some, you know, five gallon jerry cans as they're called. Uh, but what do you do? So managing that is sort of an interesting thing you need to think through. Oftentimes, as they said, if you if you have no wind, you want to motor because if you don't motor, then the next storm that's coming, you might be on the wrong side of that next storm. So, or, or you know, you want to move north or you want to move south, you want to move in a particular direction so you can position yourself for the next weather front that's coming through to take advantage of it. Uh, so if you don't motor, you're going to be out of position. So there's this real sort of planning and tactical piece that kind of comes into this uh, that that you need to sort of uh, figure out. So I thought I thought that was a couple of things that that sort of struck me. What what were some of the things that really struck you, Mike? Um, one of the things you can explain to me is this thing about the wind vane and the autopilot. Mm. That was something that I really didn't understand. Can you give me a quick uh, explanation? Sure. So most boats, like my boat, has an autopilot on it. So I can put in a, either a heading or a waypoint, uh, and, and the boat will steer itself to that. And it uses the GPS, and it's on my boat. It's, you know, it's an electronic device uh, that's hooked up to a a hydraulic pump that runs and will will move the tiller. 
will will move the, the rudder on my boat. So it steers the boat. Yep. Uh, it, it works seen. great. Yep. And, and and they're super great. Um, now a wind vane is an invention that somebody invented. I don't know who invented it, but it's really clever. So it's it's a it's a a Rube Goldberg looking device that bolts onto the stern of your boat, bolts onto the back of the boat, and it's got a fin that sticks down into the water and it acts as a rudder. So it's it's it uh you take your rudder and you sort of lock your rudder on on most of these. You lock your rudder and there's a fin that sticks down and that acts as a rudder. And then there's an other fin that sticks up in the air that is like a small sail. Uh but it, but it's it it's not a sail that flaps around. It's got a frame around it and then in between that that uh, frame is some cloth that makes it look like a sail. Okay, and it's sort of long and skinny, maybe three feet tall and eight, nine, ten inches wide. And 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 this thing is mechanically connected. They're all mechanically connected through some ingenious mechanism. So what happens is when the wind blows across the sail in a certain direction, it changes the angle of the rudder that's in the water. So you can imagine if the if the wind blows that that sail this way, then the rudder turns the boat in the proper direction to balance out the wind again on that sail that's sticking up and vice versa. And it takes a while to sort of tune these for your boat, right? You just don't bolt it on. Like my autopilot, you basically plug in the wires, you turn it on and it works. These, these wind vanes take a little bit of, of tuning uh, to your boat, but they work great. Uh, and they work 24 hours a day. They don't use any electricity. They don't use any power. And, and you know, all sort of long distance sailors use them. Because again, it goes back to most autopilots. Yeah, they're good. And they may work for 17 days in a row, 24 hours a day, but they may not. And, and I think offline, Simon told me some stories of, you know, people who showed up in Horta after sailing there from the United States, and they went through three autopilots on the way over. Wow. And some of this happens, some of this is also a function of the types of seas you encounter. So when you're sailing long distances, you're always trying to go downwind. You're trying to sail with the wind at your back, which also means the waves are sort of at your back. And that's when an autopilot has to work really hard because you're going up the side of one wave, and then you're going down the side of the other wave. And most of the times the waves are not directly on your nose, they're off at an angle. So the boat as it's going up is, is also wants to go to the left and then on the way down, the boat wants to go to the right just because of the angle at which the boat is encountering the waves. So an autopilot just is constantly working and it's working it hard because it, it puts yeah. a lot of stress on the autopilot because it's trying to keep the boat Straight and even straight. hand steering in those situations is a challenge. But in hand steering, you sort of you sort of learn how to get the rhythm. Um, but these wind vanes work really great in those situations because again, you're not using power. There's nothing really to wear out. There's no pumps to leak hydraulic oil, etc. Uh, so anyway, um, great explanation. All of yeah, thanks, thanks. Now, the next question I have for you is, let's talk a little bit about seasickness. I was amazed <laughs> at, at what an issue yeah. this was. Um, yeah. 
how, how does this happen and what can you do about it? And what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So seasickness is, is not gone wood. I've never experienced it. And, and for those of our, our longtime listeners know that Simon Sawyer and I brought their boat back when it was brand new to them from Florida. I was the experienced sailor on that trip. So we sailed it up from Florida and they always made fun of me because whenever I could, I would take a nap <laughs> and I would, you know, if somebody else was on duty, I, I would go down below. And if I could take a one hour nap, I would. So I'd be really rested. And, and the other thing I did is I use seasickness patches. So there's these patches you can buy and each patch is good for three days. You put it behind your ear and it helps prevent seasickness. And I use those prophylactically, meaning I just put them on like day before the trip, I put one on and every three days I put a new one on. Regardless of how big the seas were, we could be inside on the intercoastal water wear and I, I would wear them. Uh, and they used to make fun of me about that. And now they've sailed a lot since then, right? They have several thousand miles of sailing along the East Coast of the United States, particularly up in Maine, where they did multi-day passages, and neither one of them ever got sick. Um, however, on this trip, <laughs> they did get sick. And seasickness is caused by some, some sort of uh, miscommunication between your eyeballs and the little grains of sand in your inner ear and your brain. And it gets confused because does your eyeballs are saying one thing and the little grains of sand in your inner ear are saying another thing and it causes something to go wacky. But there are medications you can take. There's a whole bunch of wives tales types of uh, remedies that you can try, um, but there are medications you can take. And the dangers with seasickness are, uh, you 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 vomit. You you can't keep food down, and you can't keep water down. So you have a danger of dehydration, and um, and and you get malnourished, and it it can become extremely extremely dangerous. People die from this because of dehydration. Um, so you have to manage it. And I think at one point in time during my conversation with Simon, he was saying, "Look, my goal for the day was to was to drink this 500 milliliters of water and keep it down. <laughs> you know, that was the goal for the day. So he was pretty seasick. Uh, so I think here again, it, it it's it's interesting, right? They did all this preparation, they did all these things. They'd never been seasick before, but they didn't, you know." bring the patches. Uh, yeah. So I think that's an interesting lesson learned, right? You have to be prepared for everything. And part of the challenge with seasickness is once you get seasick, a lot of these medications don't work. So you almost need to start the medication, whether it be Dramamine pills or patches or whatever, prior to your departure. And there are some side effects. Some of them make you tired and sleepy. And as Simon said, right, you're you need you need a couple of things. You need to you need to be rested, you need to be hydrated, and you need to have nourishment. And those are three things. If you don't have those three things, then your body starts shutting down. You start becoming a liability as a member of the crew, as opposed to an asset. And and so it's really important, particularly when there's only a few of you on a boat like that, that everyone try to stay healthy. Um, so. Uh, that, that I think is, is sort of a real important lesson from this is, you know, be proactive 
about preventing seasickness. And some of these things have some side effects. So, you know, a month before you're leaving on a trip, put on a patch at home and Try it. see yeah. if, see what the impacts are. And if it doesn't work for you, then call up your doc and say, hey, what else, what else can you prescribe for me that, you know, can help with this motion sickness stuff? Because a lot of people suffer from motion sickness in airplanes and cars. My sister used to get car sick all the time. I remember That's when I was fun. a kid. Um, yeah. Right. So it, it's it's not just it's not just something that happens. You know, if you're on a boat, they call it seasickness. If you're in a car, they call it motion sickness. <laughs> it's the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, same exact thing. Interesting. Yeah. So they the weather was something that was interesting. And it sounds like they were really prepared for the weather. And the weather seemed like it was pretty good. But how much of that was really lucky? Or how much was that was the planning and the, sur the, sur the, the kind of the service that they use and things like that? What was your what's your takeaway on the, the weather situation? Well, there's certain times a year you want to you want to be in certain parts of the world when it comes to sailing or being on the ocean. So part of it is planning. Uh, you know, you you, you don't want to go across the northern Atlantic in January. That's a bad mm -hmm. time to be out there. So there's certain wind, weather windows uh, during the 12 months of the year that you want to be in certain places and not in other places. So they, they followed all the rules there. Uh, and and then I think the weather routing is is, is really important because it, it sort of gets a professional set of eyeballs on on where where you're at and where you're going and what's coming and what's around the corner, so to speak. And if you look at their path across the, to the Azores, they did make, uh, <clears throat> I think it was like one deviation of probably 100, 100 miles or so. I think it was to the north or south, I can't remember now, uh, to sort of position themselves better for the passing of a weather front. And, you know, 100 miles can make a huge difference in sort of the weather conditions that you encounter. So, I mean, right? I mean, a lot of these storms are very localized. Uh, <clears throat> you're certainly going to feel some of the effects of it, uh, but if you can position yourself 100 miles this way or 100 miles that way, that can make a huge difference. And the professionals who do the weather routing understand that, and and they can give you those instructions to say, you know what, for the next day, you want to turn to this heading because we, we want to move you a little further south. So I think, it, <clears throat> I think it's really important. And they got these weather updates like every three or four days, if I remember correctly. Um, and, and I think it did make a difference. And, and if I was going to do something like this, I would not do it without a weather router. Uh, and there's a whole handful of companies that do this, and they're all pretty quite, they're all quite good. And, you know, they do it for the big ocean ships. I mean, they do it for the freighters <laughs> and the car carriers and the container ships. They all use these services uh, because they too, uh, you know, are concerned about these things. Yeah, interesting. What about the whole power thing? That was also mm. really interesting to me. They did a lot of work on making sure they had plenty of electricity, um, and it sounds like that worked really well. Any comments on that? Well, you know, here's a great example. Right, they're off the grid <laughs> for 17 yeah. days. I mean, they are off the grid, so they they are. They are their own little city. They're gener making their own water. <laughs> They're making their own electricity. So, uh, and electricity runs everything. You know, these boats are electric. They're like electric cars. Mm -hmm. I mean, th they do have a gasoline engine, which they can generate some electricity with, uh, or, or a diesel engine, I, I should say. Uh, but solar cells have really uh, hit their stride 
when it comes to boats and the marine industry. Uh, and so you got to generate your own electricity uh, because your GPS, everything runs on it. It's just, except, except for the weather vane. Right. <laughs> you don't need electricity for the right. weather vane, which is nice. Uh, so I, I, I think, I think that that's really important. And, and I know they did in, I don't, I don't think we talked much about it in the planning episode, but they, you know, you can do an analysis on the amount of power you're using on a boat. All of the electronic devices say how much power they they use on them. So you can kind of figure that out. You can figure out the duty cycle and you can make an estimate of sort of how much power you need to generate. And, you know, you, you, you need to do that in a way that's still going to generate sufficient power on cloudy days. So if you have four days of overcast skies, you, you, you need extra capacity, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right. You, you can't size the system just for bright, sunny days and say, OK, we're going to have plenty of power. You have to sort of size the system for 50 percent output because the solar cell output falls off pretty quickly as as the sun goes away. Uh, so I think it's important. It's it's critical. They had 600 watts of, of like power generation, which isn't huge, but it was enough for them. Uh, and it seems like that worked really well for them. Yeah. And then the water, the water was interesting. And the whole thing about hot showers, what, what was your take on that? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what it's like if, if you haven't, if you haven't had a shower for two days and you've been out mm -hmm. camping or something, you know, and you feel grubby and, and maybe you feel a little seasick too. I mean, a, a nice hot shower really, really uh, improves your spirits, makes you feel better. And so they have a water maker, right? So that's another big challenge. How am I going to get water? Uh, because you can't drink right, the seawater, salt water, right? Salt, salty, unfortunately, right? So you gotta, have, you can't bring enough water with you. Uh, so I think what he said was three gallons per person per day is sort of what what they utilized, mm -hmm. um, which is making a gallon and a half an hour, right? Right, right. So and that's a pretty small water maker. Water, there's some water makers will make a much more challenge with water makers is they use a lot of power. Because you have a big high pressure pump that's forcing the salt water through this semi permeable membrane mm -hmm. that's taken out all the salt, uh, so they use a lot of electricity. Uh, but I think it's it's absolutely necessary, and you have to have one. Now, what happens if your water maker fails, <laughs> right? So they do make little hand pumps that you can you know manually pump uh, water through a little. It makes you know very little water but enough to drink and keep you alive and stuff. Um, but I think it's, I think it's important to have those types of things. And just like they planned about food, you know, you got to plan about your personal hygiene too. Uh, and cause it, 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 those little things often mean a lot when you're in, in, in these types of situations. I, I can remember my son and, and his wife talking about, cause they hiked the Pacific crest trail. They started in Mexico, they finished up in the Canadian border and you know, every four or five days, they would pull into a little town, and the first thing they wanted to do was take a hot shower. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was like number one on their list. So it's no different being yep. out in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. So other than the seasickness, it really sounds like everything worked as well as it possibly could have. And yeah, you know, I think there's a solution to hopefully for the next leg of the trip. We'll find out, right? But hopefully, the seasickness battle can be won. You know. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. All right. Yeah, sounds good. Let's wrap this episode up and get on to part two, Mike. 
Agreed. I can't wait to hear it. Listeners, thanks for joining us for yet another episode. We hope you found our conversation both interesting and thought-provoking. And as always, if you have questions about what we've discussed, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is sailingtheeast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, hit that follow button on your favorite podcasting app. It uh, increases the visibility of the podcast and lets, lets other people find it very easily. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you all soon. And from over here on the east side of the Atlantic, where Simon and Sawyer are now, signing off from Münster, Germany. I'll see you next time, Bela.